Can anyone tell me the oldest book in the Bible? Which is the oldest book in the Bible? Who would suggest one? Hmm? Job. Very good. Job is the oldest book. Yeah, let's give him a hand. That's good. Job. <laughs> Job is the oldest book in the Bible. We think that it may go back as far as 5,000 B.C. Be one of the oldest books known in the world. How do we judge the date of Job? It's the oldest Hebrew that we have. We refer to it as Paleo-Hebrew. It has nothing to do with a diet. It's simply the most ancient Hebrew we have, and that makes it very difficult to translate Job because some of those words are so ancient that their definitions have just been lost and forgotten. So translating Job is a very creative project. Job expresses for us some of the deepest human feelings, and experiences. In fact, it is not to Hebrew that um, we would turn to describe the spirit of Job. Uh, Instead, it would be a much more modern language, Yiddish. Do you know what Yiddish is? Yiddish is a very colorful and expressive language today. comes to us principally from the commercial sector of New York, but it's actually 15th century German written with Hebrew alphabet and with Hebrew vocabulary along with Polish and uh, some uh, of the other Eastern languages thrown in for good measure. And you may have heard the word kvetch. Do you know what kvetch is? What is kvetch? What does it mean to kvetch? Anybody know? Nobody's worked in New York? Complaining. Whining. Whining is kvetching. You know what our, my favorite Jewish wine is? I want to go to Florida. (laughs) It's probably yours too right now. But whining. So, kvetching is complaining. And that's just what Job is doing in the first reading today. He's complaining about his circumstances. And his life appears to be all misery. And indeed, Job was facing some terrifying and terrible trials uh, in his life. And these are borne out to us for the purpose of the morality of this story, this very, very ancient story. But let's face it, all of us have, from time to time, found life very challenging and difficult. And our faith uh, becomes itself a difficult struggle. I had someone say to me in the wake of 
a very, very sad and difficult trial in life just a few days ago. I wish that I could believe. And belief is tough. It's difficult, especially in the face of overwhelming trials and difficulty. And we face this kind of anguish and pain, difficulty and sorrow in our lives. And there are times when we pray and it appears that our prayers are unanswered, that God has turned his attention away, and we are tempted even to despair. Job was struggling in this way in his life. We also are introduced to Job's wife, who is also struggling. And while they are both tempted to bitterness, we have only one phrase, unfortunately from a time uh, in human civilization when women received very, very little public attention. And so we only have this fragment of a phrase from her where her bitterness is expressed, why not curse God and die? But her frustration may actually not be with God at all. That may not have been any bit of a theological statement. Rather, it was targeted at Job because of his continuous uh, complaint. And she says, why don't you just fade? <laughs> she's, she's having a dip. So we have this struggle even in their relationship with one another exposed to us. What do we learn from Job's trial? Well, we know at the end of the tale, uh, Job has everything restored to him. And uh, this is... Uh, this, this illustrates for us the power and force of human resilience uh, because it is not the miracle that is the focus, but rather Job's prevailing over his trials and tribulations. So what do we learn from this? The second reading this morning gives us some insight. Paul says, I have become all things to all. What we learn from Job and we learn from Paul this morning is that in those difficult struggles of life, when we are facing the anguish of a faltering faith, when we find it hard to believe in God, when we find it painful to face a prayer that appears unanswered, that our hopes are dashed, that we do not suffer this way alone. Rather, the church prevails for us. We pray for each other. We hold each other up. This is what it means to belong to the church, to be a member of the body of Christ, so that when my faith is faltering, when I find it hard to believe, those I am united with in the church believe for me, pray for me. When I find it difficult to pray, others are praying for me. So when my faith is faltering, someone else is praying in my place, 
And when their faith falters, I can step in and pray for them. I use the, uh, I think I left my phone in the sacristy, but I use on my phone the Divine Office app. And when I log into the Divine Office app for our prayers five times a day, I always see a number of people who are praying around the world with that same app. Amazing, isn't it, how we rely on technology? But it reminds me that there are others who are praying those prayers at the same time. Sometimes it's 10,000, sometimes it's more. People simultaneously praying at the same time. We can hold one another up in prayer. This is what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. So we make up for one another. When I falter, you pray and support me. When you falter, I pray and I support you. And we see this so beautifully illustrated in the Gospel this morning because our Lord comes to the house of the Pope's mother-in-law. Does that sound funny to you? So this is St. Peter's wife's mother. And she's ill. And our Lord comes to their house, and it's a beautiful phrase. It says that he approached her, grasped her hand, and helped her up. It was then that she was healed. But be careful for the sequence. He approaches her. There's a sense of concern, of interest, and of recognizing her dignity. By approaching her, he respects her. He doesn't just wave his hand. He most certainly doesn't dismiss her. But he approaches her as you would someone with whom you are expressing honor. And then he reaches out and grasps her hand. And in grasping her hand, he recognizes that she, like he, is another human being with the need of assistance, of recognition, and he helps her up. It's interesting that he doesn't command her to rise. He helps her up. And what do we have in this for an illustration for ourselves this morning? But that when we see another who is weaker, it doesn't matter whether that is a weakness in spirit, that is with faith and belief, whether it's a weakness in mind and emotions, or whether it's a weakness in body, when we see another who is weaker, we first recognize and respect their dignity and individuality. We turn to them not as a deficient being, but as a co-equal human being. We recognize ourselves in them, and then we reach out a hand, and uniting our hand with theirs, we help them up. This may mean helping them up in a spiritual sense at a time of faltering faith and difficulty in praying and believing, or we help them up 
at a time of mental or emotional distress. We don't denigrate them because of their mental or emotional state, or we reach out and help them up by intervening in their physical difficulty. But whatever it is, we help them up. And when we do that, healing comes to that person, and I would suggest that it comes to us as well, that we experience that same healing. Why? Because not only do we find a joy and fulfillment in assisting another, which is a common human experience, but more than that, we see that when we are weak, there will be a hand reaching out, grasping ours, and helping us up. We learn that we do not suffer alone. And this is what it means to belong to the body of Christ, to be a member of Christ, where we recognize one another, we help one another when we need support. We receive it from the body of Christ, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional and mental, or whether it's physical. In any respect, we can turn always to the church, the body of Christ, We pray for one another, we help one another, we support one another, and therefore, we do not suffer alone.